Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 14th of November 2022, just after one o'clock. Apologies for the slight delay. Welcome to UK Column News. Your hosts today, Mike Robinson and myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. And we're also joined by Mark Anderson from the United States. Uh, we'll get uh, kicked off straight away with migration and immigration. And uh, well, as we know, uh, lots of people coming to the UK at the moment. Uh, but don't worry, because the government has it all in hand. Uh, numbers of officers in northern France are going to increase by 40% in the coming months as a result of UK funding, uh, which is going to step up action, they say, to reduce illegal small boat crossings following the new UK-France uh, UK-France agreement signed today. So here's Sola Barverman over in uh, France today signing the new agreement. Are you impressed? Uh, no, I'm not, I'm not impressed because, of course, this, this whole problem is getting, not is getting, is totally out of control. And these, I don't think, are sufficient steps to deal with it. No, indeed. Um, so uh, she's over there meeting her counter French counterpart. This new agreement, they say, lays the foundations for deeper UK-French cooperation to tackle illegal migration and sparks the next step for close operational partnership between the two countries that prevented over 30,000 crossings this year. So there you go. Can't be bad. Uh, here's what she has to say uh, before she went. We must do everything we can to stop people making these dangerous journeys and crack down on the criminal gangs. This is a global challenge requiring global solutions, and it's in the interest of both the UK and French governments to work together to solve this complex problem. Uh, there are no quick fixes, but this new arrangement will mean we can significantly increase the number of French gendarmes patrolling the beaches in northern France and ensure UK and French officers are working together, uh, working hand in hand, sorry, to stop the people smugglers. Now, if we go back a couple of years, uh, this is what the British government was saying. This is Nicola Murray, the, uh, who was a member of the UK delegation to the OSCE in 2020, the UK government has made tackling modern slavery a priority and is committed to eradication of all forms of modern slavery, forced labour and human trafficking by 2030. And uh, a lot of what's coming out of the media at the moment is making the point that people are being taken over in these boats. It's costing them a lot of money. Most of them don't have that money. So they're getting finding themselves in financial hawk to these uh, people smugglers and therefore ending up in some form of forced labor once they get here. So I just wanted to very briefly focus on how much money the government is spending on this issue. Uh, and uh, well, here's the 2021 annual uh, UK annual report on modern slavery. Uh, and they talk about uh, direct, total direct government spend on modern slavery. Well, actually, they don't. Uh, they don't talk about it. In fact, if you want to know how much money they're spending, uh, you need to go back a couple of years to the 2018 UK annual report on modern slavery. Uh, when they were making the point that in 2017, 2018, 39 million pounds was spent on dealing with this problem. And in uh, 2018, 2019, 61 million pounds, but we don't know exactly how much has been spent since then. But just to put this in perspective, let's remind ourselves, ourselves of the size of this industry, uh, 130 billion pounds a year, uh, every year, human traffickers making profit, that amount of profit from the trade, 21 million victims worldwide, uh, and 54% uh, ending up in sexual exploitation, 38% forced labor, 8% other. Uh, now, the other aspect of this is that, of course, lots of Albanians coming into the country uh, at the moment. And uh, well, the Telegraph had this a couple of days ago, Modern Slavery Act set for reform to tackle migrant crisis. 
Uh, it is understood, they said, that ministers are looking to amend the Modern Slavery Act to prevent Albanians using it to evade deportation. Some 12,000 Albanians have crossed the channel in small boats this year, uh, more than a quarter of the total 40,000. So uh, the government claiming that uh, people are coming here and then using uh, the, uh, an allegation of modern slavery as an excuse to justify uh, being able to stay. Um, David, this uh, whole issue of migration and modern slavery and so-called modern slavery and so on is all uh, mixed up together and it's very hard to get very, a clear picture of exactly what's happening to people once they come here. I know you're going to be talking about hotels in a second, but uh, the point is that many people that do come here are ending up being exploited. Uh, and as we've mentioned many, many times in this program, uh, including those that are underage, uh, just disappearing from the system. Uh, so this, this is part and parcel of what's going on. Yes, the complexity of what's going on is not really being addressed. The, 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 the left will shut down any, any meaningful debate about the problem by playing the compassion card. You know, these people are, are, are fleeing conflict and they're running for their lives and we have a duty and obligation to look after them. Um, but of course, it's, that's, that's not the majority, but those people are mixed in as well. You've got economic migration, you've got countries being taken apart. We're going to talk about Syria shortly and people displaced because of that. You've got the difficulties of what actually has been the government policy because we know from Blair, from Sutherland, that this was a policy in order to break up the United Kingdom to make us more like everywhere else and to make us more amenable to certain political agendas because, well, we need to, to remove the, the homogeneity of the, uh, of the population and diversity is our strength. So it's, some of it's a political move being, being made by politicians far above the level of the migrants or the traffickers. Then you've got the huge, huge criminal aspect to this and the, and the degree of personal suffering that's involved in, in, this, in modern slavery and particularly the sex trade is, is beyond belief. Uh, I, I, if if, if uh, you, you speak to any of the people who are affected by it, I mean, the stories are just... Um, the, the cruelty, the, the, the callousness, the barbarism, the treating of people like meat that goes on is beyond, is beyond words. So you have all of these problems mixed up together and then a very simplistic Yabu politics uh, approach to trying to deal with it or allegedly trying to deal with it because no one's really doing any dealing at the moment. It's a very strange situation. Yeah, and David, very briefly, just when you've got billions of pounds being made in profit, but you're only spending a few millions of pounds in dealing with it, well, that sounds like the cost of doing business. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like drug this, trafficking. This has always been... It's like drug trafficking, it's like prohibition. You've got to buy off the authorities. That's just, uh, that's just a cost of trade, yes. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so, so let's talk about the hotels then. Yeah, so this uh, first slide here, this is the uh, Radisson Blue. This is the Station Hotel in Perth, a very large hotel. And as you'll see from the sign, it is uh, now close to the public if you want to stay there. Um, tough. You can't. And uh, we've also got the Queen's Hotel uh, just across the way. The Queen's Hotel's smaller, but uh, again, one of, one of Perth, not a large town, large city, but uh, this is one of its major hotels. 
now also close to the public. These two hotels probably represent about half the, half the bedroom spaces in the town of Perth, and they're all closed, and they're closed because they're full of asylum seekers, refugees, uh, etc. So I was speaking to these two gentlemen who were enjoying a ciggy outside the station hotel. Uh, they were from Syria, um, from Holmes and Aleppo, and uh, one of them had quite good English. And his reason to be there was escaping the war. It didn't seem to be any particular persecution, at least none he was describing, but he wanted away from the war. He didn't want to be involved in the war, so he was seeking uh, a home elsewhere. And uh, just uh, finally, these two hotels, just to show you how close they are, uh, they're both in this one shot. This is the view from Perth Railway Station. So you've got um, two very large hotels. The station hotel's huge. Um, now being wholly devoted to looking after, uh, it's all men, at least the last time they were in Perth, it was all men, I think it is again. It's uh, all young men in that sort of degree of concentration. The chances of having social problems are, are very high from that. There was none last time, as I understand it, but it's always a risk. Um, and it, you can see the degree of concentration. And this is in Perth. A long, long way from the channel, so this is government policy that's decided to place these people here in order to distribute them throughout the country so that the sheer scale of the problem is not visible in places like Kent. Uh, yeah, very interesting, David. And for people who didn't quite pick up on it, you made reference to the quote by Peter Sutherland, who is uh, now dead, but uh, while he was alive, he said that we needed to break down the homogeneity of the nation state in order to enable mass migration, in order to get the globalist UN policies in place. So people really need to research this to understand why we're seeing the mass migration. But of course, there's nothing better for mass migration than a war. So let's move over to uh, Ukraine. And of course, over the last few days, we've had the Russian Defense Ministry. Uh, we've got this picture here. Um, deciding what's to be done on the battlefield. And of course, we've had the recent announcement uh, of the withdrawal from Kyrgyzstan. Uh, but the BBC has, of course, loved all of this. So this was a more recent one. Ukraine war, Kiev claims major gains as Russia exit Kyrgyzstan. And uh, David, you've got a, um, a map here, which of course is, is showing us how the... Uh, battlefield has changed in the time that the war's been going on. And it does indicate some uh, large areas where the Russians have pulled out aside from the Kyrgyzstan area. Yes, just to give a, a, a sort of scale for what's been happening, and this is obviously from a site that's it's, it's pro-Ukrainian in its, in its stance, so talking about liberated uh, ground. But the, for the, however you view politically what's happening, uh, you've got here uh, a couple of maps that indicate where where the Russians reached as a kind of maximum extent, uh, and this was April the first, twenty twenty two, and um, now where they are in terms of November eleventh, twenty twenty two. So in a relatively short time. Um, there's been huge areas which have been regained by the Ukrainian government. Uh, the second map shows that very clearly. And this, this shows you this, just the scale of what's actually been happening. The scale of the movements, the scale of the, 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 uh, the land that's been changing hands. Um, and the fact that the 
the initial uh, advances with the Russians have been in part reversed, and that there's a much more complex story about what's actually happening in the, on the ground militarily um, than we're getting from either partisan set of reports. And to try and get some clarity about what's happening, uh, as, as you've explained previously, Brian, we're, we're relying on on the blogosphere, we're relying on individual commentators, we're relying on people who are sifting the news very carefully, but doing so well removed from the mainstream media. The mainstream media is not providing any information about this that's, uh, that's, 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 uh, that, is, that has genuine insight and uh, gives a, a clear picture. Yeah, okay. Well, we're just honing in with one more map because this shows us the actual uh, area on the west bank of the uh, Dnieper where uh, Russia has now uh, given up the ground. So the ground in light purple there, uh, Ukrainians are now taken over and the Kyrgyzstan city is divided. Um, so what can we expect? Well, of course, it didn't take the BBC long to show the smiling face of Zelensky. And he's apparently taken the opportunity to visit Kyrgyzstan, uh, which is has been, according to the BBC, liberated by the Ukrainians. It's no longer a withdrawal. It was liberated. Um, but um, Zelensky said some very interesting things, which is in, which are in the BBC report. Uh, very simple, very short. Ukraine is ready for peace, peace for all our country. Now, I think I'm right in saying that this is the first time I've heard the word peace used by Zelensky um, really since the start of the conflict. He said on many occasions we can't negotiate, we can't sit down and negotiate, but peace never really mentioned, but this time he's talking peace. And um, he was asked where Ukraine might advance next, to which he replied, not Moscow, we're not interested in the territories of another country. And another quote that I picked out of this report was this one. He'd like to thank NATO and other allies for their support in the war against Russia, adding that high mobility artillery rocket systems, HIMARS from the United States, had made a big difference for Kiev. So, David, I'm going to throw it back to you. This is quite remarkable because all of a sudden, immediately after the American elections, we've now got Zelensky using the peace word. There's been a change. There has indeed. And what were, what were we reporting last week? Uh, we were reporting a, a Western official, French, if memory serves, saying that if they could retake Kherson, that would be enough and they could negotiate peace at that point. So there does seem to be the suggestion here that some sort of deal may have been done, um, that uh, retreating to the Dnieper is what has been required of the Russians, and they have done it. And I would also point out that they first evacuated the civilian population because Russian su supporting civilians would not be safe under Ukrainian control. And I think that's a point that, that's worth reflecting on. Um, so are we now going to see a peace deal? Logically, we should see one. We've, we've, we've had uh, the battle going back and forth. We've had the Russians mobilise more troops. This, this is hugely reduced the amount of headway that the Ukrainians can make. The Russians themselves had reached a point of exhaustion before this. Logically, what you would normally expect at this point would be a negotiated settlement, a redrawing of the map, and the war being put behind us. Now, let's hope that's what happens. If it does not, I would suspect that there's political 
pressure being brought from elsewhere to keep the conflict going, because I can't see any purpose in it beyond this point. Okay, well, um, a few days ago, uh, Mike had this really excellent uh, picture of Ben Wallace and Jens Stoltenberg on screen. And uh, this, I find something deeply offensive about this picture because, of course, Ben Wallace is dressed up in combat gear, but he's squeaky clean. He is not going to go near the Ukrainian battlefield. And Jens Stoltenberg, the man who can make wars happen, is there busy grinning and smiling. They're both wearing a poppy. I'll put some uh, dialogue in here. I'm going to suggest that uh, Ben was saying we did it, Jens. 9,000 Ukrainian dead in Kyrgyzstan and 100,000 Ukrainian dead so far is a small price for us to pay to get Putin. And the response from Mr. Stoltenberg was those brave Ukrainian troops died a great death for our NATO EU expansionist project, Ben, and their families should be proud. Let's not stop the war yet. And I think this is the key thing. If you want to know why this war isn't going to stop, it isn't going to stop until NATO and the EU have decided that they can't progress their regime change against Putin. But this is the reality nobody wants to talk about. Uh, I could have chosen a number of clips, but this is Ukrainian graves in the Kharkov area. And of course, this is the BBC's big secret because uh, this remarkable war, according to the BBC, has been fought without any Ukrainian casualties. Uh, but meanwhile, um, UK is still training Ukrainian troops. And um, uh, fascinating to see that we've got Canada and Lithuania also working in UK to train those troops. What's going to happen to those Ukrainian troops? Uh, they're going to die on the battlefield. So, David, I hope you're right that this is a sensible time to stop the war. The average human being would think so, but whether it's in the minds of British, American and European politicians, who knows? Um, but aside from the dead, the other thing that the BBC doesn't want to talk about is what the Russians have been up to in Mariupol. And just show you a little clip here of this is incredible, really. It is massive reconstruction by the Russians to repair damage to the city during the fighting. So it's clear that the Russians are not planning to leave that city anytime soon. And of course, compare what's happening here uh, to what Ukraine is suffering as a, as a result of the ongoing war. So it will be very interesting to uh, see how this one pans out. Well, if that's what the Russians are doing in Mariupol, what's going on in the rest of Ukraine? Well, let's put this on. This is the Odessa Journal. Uh, Ministry of Economy signed a memorandum with the world's largest investment company. We might, we might call them an investment company, uh, but this is what it says. Ministry of the Economy of Ukraine and BlackRock, the world's largest investment company, have signed a memorandum of understanding, agreeing on a framework for consultative assistance in developing a special platform to attract private capital for the recovery and support of Ukraine's economy. In particular, the agreement signed on November 10th in Washington, D.C., uh, provides that BlackRock's Financial Markets Advisory will consult the Ministry of Economy on creation of a roadmap for the implementation of an investment platform which will primarily attract private capital. This includes the structure of the platform, its mandate and governance. Um, so while the Russians are actually there building in Mariupol, uh, we're talking about bringing in massive hedge funds to bring in private capital to do what? take control, take full control of the country, Mike, because this is what was done to Iraq. It's the 
It's destroy it, use the Western military to destroy the country, then bringing the banking, the money, and these companies to rebuild. And what you what you achieve is complete and utter control of the target company, um, country. And, beg your pardon. Yes, and so this uh, follows on from Vlad uh, Vladimir Zelensky and the chief executive of BlackRock, Larry Fink, uh, having a discussion in September on how to drive investments into Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, very briefly, David, do you think Ukraine is going to do well out of this type of uh, deal? Um. No, uh, I think we've seen this actually in the history of Russia and Ukraine before, uh, where you have um, a kind of a fire sale on assets. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not convinced that the local population are the ones who benefits, benefit. Uh, there will be uh, money to be made, um, and certain people will get very, very rich. Uh, whether it's going to be in the interest of the Ukrainians, I have my doubts. Indeed. Uh, now let's uh, bring this article from Wired on screen. Uh, dark ships emerge from shadows of the Nord Stream mystery. Uh, the first gas leaks on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline in the Baltic Sea were detected in the early hours of September 26th, pouring up to 400,000 tonnes of methane into the atmosphere. Officials immediately suspected sabotage. Uh, new analysis seen by Wired shows that two large ships with their trackers off appeared around the leak sites in the days immediately before they were detected. Uh, according to the analyze, analysis by satellite data monitoring firm SpaceNo, uh, the two dark ships, in inverted commas, each measuring about 95 to 130 metres, passed within uh, several miles of the Nord Stream 2 leak sites. Uh, they had their beacons off, meaning there was no information about their movements. Now, this article goes on to make the suggestion, uh, quoting NATO sources and so on, uh, that perhaps these were Russian ships with their uh, detectors uh, their, their bacon switched off. Uh, we'll just remember, of course, that, that there's similar narrative going back several months uh, when the claims that the Russians uh, were actually faking uh, the bacon signals from HMS uh, Defender, if I'm right. Uh, positions of two NATO ships were falsified near Russian Black Sea Naval Base. So I'm not quite sure exactly what the uh, story that's being created here is. Uh, but, you know, it, it could, Brian, just have been in this case, it could have been just two ships with faulty equipment or it could be something else. Well, it could could be. Uh, I think the equipment is the automated information systems which ships run to show what their position, course and speed is, which other ships can pick up as a safety provision. Uh, very unlikely that two ships have a failure, but also I think it's, complete nonsense to say if it's two large ships that who, 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 who those ships were, what they were doing can be established by other means. Ships don't just appear in a relatively small area and disappear. So I think there's a smokescreen here. The aim is that nobody shall know um, who owned those ships and what they were actually doing. Mm. Indeed. Uh, now, let's uh, have a quick look at Sergei Lavrov as he walked down the steps of his plane as he arrived at the G20 uh, earlier on today. Uh, well, apparently, Brian, according to the Indonesians, uh, not long after this, uh, he ended up in hospital. Uh, and uh, as a result, uh, the Western press went absolutely nuts, uh, claiming all kinds of things, including uh, major heart problems and, uh, and so on. Uh, but unfortunately, the Western press had to walk back somewhat from their narrative. Uh, as we can see in Sky New here, News here, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov appears in video amid reports he was taken to hospital after arrival at G20. 
uh, and they're saying the Russian foreign ministry dismissed claims he had been uh, in hospital as fake news. In a Telegram post, uh, Maria Zakharova said, we can't believe our eyes. It turns out, or at least they're saying he was hospitalized. Uh, this is, of course, the aerobatics of fakes. Uh, well, wait, world exclusive. So uh, Lavrov himself pushing out a video uh, suggesting that uh, it was completely fake news. Um, the uh, Daily Mail uh, afterwards trying to uh, maintain some kind of credibility by saying, ah, oh, but he didn't deny that he was in hospital. Uh, it sounds like he paid a visit to a doctor. They're not saying why, uh, but it clearly was not the significant event that uh, the mainstream press attempted to paint it as. Yeah, so uh, more false misleading information from mainstream media. Yes. Uh, okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, there are options to help us there, and that would be very, very much appreciated. Uh, but please do pick something up if you can at the UK Column shop. Uh, beanie hats are now available. Uh, and essential, Mike. Uh, absolutely. It's going to be a cold winter. Uh, suggest everybody gets as many of those as possible. Uh, but please do share uh, material you find on the various platforms. Okay, well, let's bring in Mark Anderson. And Mark, amongst the uh, to or under the turmoil of Ukraine and other worldwide economic events and disasters, of course, the story of our health of COVID nineteen and vaccine goes on. And uh, you've been paying attention to the the Red Pill conference that has been delving into many of these issues. So, uh, where would you like to start with the World Health Organization? I think. Yeah, the Red Pill Conference is happening. Actually, it just wound up Saturday and Sunday in Salt Lake City, Utah. Our readers and viewers may recall I covered the one in person in Indianapolis in July, and now they have another one. Uh, they just wound it up. They have two a year, basically. And UK Column is uh, pretty much uh, a welcome element there and a, a steady, steady news source for the Red Pill Conferences. I've got a lot of good connections there. But uh, two of the most outstanding speeches of the live stream I watched, I covered it live stream this year, I couldn't do it in person, were by Dr. David Martin, a repeat speaker from Indy, and then Del Bigtree of the Informed Consent Action Network. And this comes from Del Bigtree's um, presentation. And I'll mention that a article that I've just about wound up on the World Health Organization's World Pandemic Treaty that's just about done, that'll be going to UK column really soon. But Del Brigtree, among other things, brought this up, what you're showing on the screen, uh, that who says that anti-vaxxers are a global threat. And um, there's no surprise there, of course. Um, but the other things that Del Bigtree had to say across the board were, were quite astounding. I know you've got several slides from that, uh, that presentation uh, in Salt Lake City. But uh, he, he talked about how there's a really positive uh, uh, aspect to all of this, and we'll get into that in a minute. Yeah, you're showing the age stratified infection fatality rate of COVID-19. This is by MedRxIV, a um, noted website, across 31 systematically identified national seroprevalence studies in the pre-vaccination era, the median infection fatality rate of COVID-19 was estimated to be 0.0 3.5% for people aged 0 to 59 and 0.095% for those aged 0 to 69. So, you know, 
it really shows that COVID in Adele Bigtree's estimation and the sources he cited has never been a very serious threat. Now here's the Brownstone Institute, ages 60 to 69, fatality rate 0.501%, survival rate uh, 99.499%, ages 50 to 59, fatality rate 0.129%, survival rate 99.871%, uh, cruising a little faster. Let's go up to ages 20 through 29. Fatality rate 0.003%. Survival rate 99.997%. And the young ones, ages, point, uh, ages 0 through 19, fatality rate, get this, 0.0003%. Survival rate practically 100%. And these are other other stats cited from various sources by Del Bigtree. Now looking at this, uh, this is Be Safe COVID Vaccine Adverse Health Impacts. This is CDC data, official CDC data. Uh, there's a lot of things to unpack here. Uh, the highlights are uh, 3,353,110 individuals impacted, uh, 6.4 million health impacts reported, uh, it goes through a lot of things here. Um, uh, uh, viewers, of course, can study this more closely, but uh, it's got um, uh, adverse health impacts, um, unable to do normal activities, 1.2 million, missed work and school, 1.3 million. These are U.S. stats. Required medical care, 0.8 million. That's across the top in yellow, uh, kind of magenta and red there. And then the lower right-hand corner, Adverse health impacts by vaccine brands, Moderna 1.6 million, Pfizer 1.4 million, and then the other ones are much smaller slices of the pie. Um, and it gets into some other stats that we need not go into uh, in too much depth, but, but it does show that the adverse health impacts have been quite significant uh, by the COVID jabs, even while COVID-19 itself has had no major impact whatsoever. Now we're looking at something else quite disturbing here. Where, whereas in 1986, there in the US, there were 11 vaccines such as polio, PCV, rotavirus, et cetera, um, for kids two months old, four months old, and, and so on. By 2017, Del Bigtree of the ICANN network noted for the Red Pill audience that there were now 54 vaccines, but he said that's actually more like 72 if you count the multifaceted vaccines that have more than one jab. And then in the near future, most disturbingly, as it shows here, uh, he predicts, based on, on dependable data, hundreds of vaccines probably being prepared for the U.S. and world population. And this, much of what Del Bigtree and uh, Dr. David Martin shared at the Red Pill Conference was news even to the Red Pill audience, which is one of the most well-informed audiences you can imagine. Even they were astonished at what they were learning here from, from Mr. Bigtree. And then you're also showing the number of childhood injections administered. Again, uh, 11 or so around 1986 and 54 plus uh, in 2017. And the childhood chronic illness and developmental disability prevalence uh, the chronic illness and disability prevalence was 12.8% around 1986 and has jumped to well over 50%. And of course, that's thought to be from the uh, all these vaccines themselves. And 
even though uh, Dell Bigtree and his uh, informed consent action network are technically not anti-vax in the strict sense, they want informed consent, they want better research. He did basically spell it out that very few vaccines now are dependable or safe. Uh, even the standard flu vaccines are becoming way too hazardous. So it was a very impactful speech by Mr. Bigtree. Now, now moving on, what Dr. David Martin, who talked about uh, related matters back in July, what he had to say was truly something here. And um, this is the chart. What you're looking at is a chart that was just down the street uh, from the Salt Lake City Red Pill Conference, just down the street in the Zions Bank, the main head office. And this is a big chart, uh, Dr. David Martin said, that's on the wall in that bank, probably in the main boardroom. And what this shows is a February 1913 chart by the JP Morgan interest that was laid out to effectively control the United States about 10 months before the Federal Reserve Act was passed. And what it shows is uh, ag and metals there in the upper left corner, 2.39 billion consumer, 0.4 billion upper right corner telephone, 0.9 billion gas and electric, 0.96 billion banks, 2.02 billion rail, 10.994 billion rail was a big thing back then. But as Dr. David Martin explained, with a lot of gravity in his speech, this was a very major speech, and he said. I want to get this on the record. I want this known that this speech was given on this day at this conference. His speech was Sunday, big uh, uh, Saturday, Big Trees was on Sunday. And what that chart basically spelled out was that uh, it would be effective control of all the major levers in the U.S. economy. And, and the underlying uh, goal was to leverage the debt-based money system already existed but would be more intensified by the private central bank the federal reserve that was about to be created and through that leverage they would basically capture the people's labor and make the great mass of people work for the um, tiny few the plutocrats at the top and so everything was set in motion and now you're looking at something also very interesting that mr martin talked about the pujo committee and he did not talk about this committee in glowing terms necessarily. Now, this was formed by U.S. Representative Arsene, or Arsene, is spelled A-R-S-E-N-E, -E, kind of an unusual first name, Arsene Pujo, a Louisiana congressman. He was the first person elected to represent Louisiana's 7th District when that district was created. And during his fifth and final term, he chaired the House Committee on Banking and Currency, and it, it's very, very misleading, and it's typical of that day. He, uh, his probe was credited with stopping the money trust, get this, stopping that trust by creating the Federal Reserve System, by paving the way for it. And so what that did was actually play into the hands of that J.P. Morgan plan that, that's on that chart I showed, uh, that we showed a minute ago. And what the banksters and the... the um, uh, robber barons were actually able to do in those days, guys, as you as you probably know, and I'm sure David's aware, is they had kind of a flanking technique. They would say, yes, there is a money trust. Uh, oh, yes, it has many concentrations of wealth and power. Yes, this is a concern. And Jacob Schiff is among those that um, 
testified to the Fujo Committee uh, in the days and months before the Federal Reserve was, was formed. <clears throat> and him and other, many others from Kuhn Loeb and Company and the National Citibank and many power centers of that day would say, oh, yes, we're going to work with you, Mr. Congressman. Let's stop the money trust. Let's do it by creating a central bank. And so either Mr. Fujo was a towering ignoramus or the fix was in. And in trying to fight the money trust, he actually gave the money trust the top prize, the, the, uh, the thing that it salivated after the most, and that was the creation of the Fed. It's much like the deception when the income tax was created through the 16th Amendment. They said the 16th Amendment would soak the rich. Let's get those plutocrats. Let's get those robber barons. What it did was, of course, create a tax that would suppress the middle class, and then the robber barons put their money in the tax-exempt foundations that were created right around the same time. And therefore, they had their money hidden away. And so um, this is a tale of major deception, and it shows um, what led up to the Federal Reserve System. But um, I would encourage viewers to go to the Red Pill site for an inexpensive price, and it helps a very good conference. You can buy a three-month subscription to the video footage of the entire conference in Salt Lake City. And I would heartily recommend watching Dr. David Martin's report, as well as Del, Del Bigtree's and others among the 15 speakers who were there. But it was an amazing speech by Mr. Martin that really explained in nitty gritty detail things that were brand new, even to this audience, the nitty gritty detail of just how cunning these money masters were at this pivotal time in history. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for that. And of course, the money masters fully in bed with the pharmaceutical billions and global corporations. Um, David, what does, where does that take us to do with inquiries uh, in relation to COVID? This takes, this take, yeah, this takes us to the Scottish COVID inquiry. Now, this was founded in October 21, and uh, it's not going well. But good news, Brian, a new judge has, to, has been appointed as chair uh, this is uh, Lord Brailsford, uh, and he is replacing Lady Poole, who had to leave for personal reasons. Uh, the Herald reports here um, that the Deputy First Minister, uh, that's John Swinney, told MSP that uh, Judge Lord Brailsford would take over tomorrow. He announced that the uh, change of, uh, he also announced a change to the terms of reference. So the inquiry has been going for a year, no progress. We're now changing the terms of reference. That seems odd. So it took a human rights-based approach. Um, we'll be talking extra time about what that means exactly. Mr. Swinney said he was confident that uh, Lord Brailsford would act with sensitivity, empathy and compassion and would soon meet with the bereaved families, uh, the bereaved COVID families. Now, um, we've been go the inquiry's been running a year and these families are still waiting. This, uh, this is uh, surely a dreadful situation. Um, the Herald also reports that although Lady Poole stepped down citing personal reasons, it emerged that the inquiry's counsel had quit the day before she resigned, suggesting tensions and disagreements behind the scenes. As for Lord Brailsford, he said, quote, I promise the families that along with the inquiry team, I will work independently to establish the facts and ensure the inquiry thoroughly examines the decisions taken throughout the pandemic. Now, the key to this, I would suggest, gentlemen, is establish the facts. This entire debate, which we've now been talking about since 
the early 2020 has all been to do with the facts. There's two sets of facts. So there's ones from official sources that are that are cited as reasons to lock us down, mask us, jab us, all the rest of it. And there's the truth. If you actually look at the statistics and the evidence, you get a completely different story. So here's the question for Lord Brailsford. Which facts are, are he is he going to be looking at? Is he going to be looking at the actual facts, the truth of the situation? Or is he going to be doing what um, Linda Ahern in New Zealand said, uh, going to the government as a single source of truth? So it's going to be um, a big choice for this judge. How do you think he'll do? Well, David, I'm going to be very naughty and, uh, and say if we can possibly just pop back to the previous picture, I, I think the judge's dress says it all because presumably he's going to put two big sticking plasters over the problem. Or is that the double cross again, right? Uh, or the double cross, yes. Double cross. <laughs> but, that, but Now, um, just before we leave this subject, we have an email address here. This is the Scottish Vaccine Injured Group. It's just been formed. Uh, and the email address is scottishvig at gmail.com. So if you're in Scotland and you've been injured um, by the vaccine, you might want to contact this group and join them. They have applied for core participant status for this inquiry. It remains to be seen whether they're accepted. Whether they're accepted or not will tell us a great deal about whether the inquiry can be trusted. Yeah. Okay, David, thank you for that. Well, I'm just going to jump back a little bit because a couple of days ago I was having a look at COP27 and the BBC reporting. Uh, this was the particular headline that caught my attention. A striking image, I think. Uh, Ukraine is a reason to act fast on climate change, according to Rishi, Rishi Sunak. So, yes, that war is, is damaging the world. Um, it's, he said here that climate and energy security go hand in hand. And of course, leaders from 120 countries were meeting at Sharm El Sheikh, Egypt, to discuss the next steps in curbing climate change. So the BBC drawing people in pretty quickly. And I just picked out some of the comments. So Sunet went on said uh, to say that we can bequeath our children a greener planet and a more prosperous future. There really is room for hope. Uh, we're on a highway to climate hell with our foot on the accelerator. That was the UN General Secretary. Um, uh, his start warning was apparently echoed by US Vice President Environmentalist Al Gore, who said nations must stop subsidising the culture of death of fossil fuels. Uh, and Macron urged leaders to deliver climate justice. Uh, former UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who just happened to be in Egypt at the time, said countries should not go weak and wobbly on climate action. And the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz uh, said switching to renewable energy was a security po policy imperative, while Italy's new Prime Minister said a country remains strongly committed to its climate goals. So that was all pretty typical BBC reporting, but suddenly readers were faced with an image of uh, this charming young lady. And uh, what was the comment here? Well, it said that uh, Zaya, if I've pronounced that correctly, Bastida, a 20-year-old activist from Mexico, is there at uh, the COP meeting to tell decision makers that, quote, nature must be protected. She told BBC News she's pleased with progress so far. 
including getting the words loss and damage on the agenda, the terms refer to money as some form of comp compensation or reparations for the effects of climate change on developing countries that did little to cause the problem. Um, David, uh, I think you want to come in. Well, cash is king, Brian. Right? This is the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. It's all about money and power and control. And again, just like COVID, the facts, the data, the data have to be manipulated to give the answer that you want. Uh, it, none of this is based on anything like hard science. It's not based on the data. The data gives lie to the entire case. That's what we've got to concentrate on. That's what we've got to concentrate, but the, B well, but the BBC would prefer you concentrated on the 20-year-old young lovely. So uh, we've covered Miss Bastida. Uh, let's bring in Michaela Loach, because uh, this young lady, who's 24, year old, 24 years old from Scotland, said she's worried leaders are not fully committed to climate action that prioritises justice or human rights. Not all climate solutions are good for people. It's not just about cutting emissions. We must frame all our work about people and the world we're creating. So this young lady is about creating a new world. Well, who is she? Because the BBC doesn't tell us. Uh, well, if we go to social media, our friend, we can see a nice picture of her. And uh, she's a climate justice activist and a medic. But of course, she's no ordinary activist because she's also an author. It's not that radical climate action to transform our world. And if we dig deeper into social media, we can still, we can find out even more about this young lady because here she is boasting about our book. But to really understand the quality of the people that the BBC is pushing forward to save the planet and, <coughs> excuse me, and make sure that other people um, understand what the agenda is about. They're using ladies of the quality of Miss Loach. So let's have a look at this video as she describes her book. This is the most exciting news that I've ever had to share. I'm writing a book. My book, It's Not That Radical, Climate Action to Transform Our World, is the book that I wish existed. It's an accessible entry into climate justice that tackles white supremacy, whiteness, capitalism, individualism, all of these oppressive systems that are holding us back and causing harm. Um, and that make us believe that the best that we can hope for with climate action is the same world but green. But instead, climate justice tells us that we can, tra we can transform the world and we can actually demand more. I'm so, so proud of this book. It's the most proud I've been of anything that I've done. So please, please pre-order it. Pre-orders mean so, so much, especially to first-time authors, especially to first-time black authors. Um, please buy a copy for your mum, your friends, for everyone that you know. Um, I simply wrote this to try and be accessible to as many people as possible um, and to really move us all towards the future that we really need. And I think the books can be an important part of that. So please share this and pre-order. The link is in my bio. I'm not gonna lie, I can't believe this is real. Like, I'm writing a book, like what the, what the, what the, what the? Sign Scottish. So, David, what did you like think of that? Like, well, I didn't like it very much. It, what it what it was very clear is what's the climate scam about? Well, it's about Marxism. It's about neo Marxism. It's about changing the world. It's about destroying the Western society, which is described as whiteness. It's about destroying the economy. It's uh, about destroying individualism because we must all be collective now. You can't be an individual anymore because that's bad. That's white. You can't have that. 
And uh, once we've destroyed everything, the cultural Marxists tell us, we just keep destroying things and keep destroying things, and eventually there'll be nothing left to destroy. And the, 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 the wonderful utopia will emerge because uh, that is their um, Marxist religion version of uh, the kingdom of God on earth. They will bring it about by destroying whiteness and destroying the economy and destroying everything. Everything uh, else. That's what they're selling. And um, it's exceptionally dangerous. And it's dangerous because young, impressionable, stupid, poorly educated people are believing it. Uh, right. Okay, so let's focus on the BBC. So what is the BBC really selling? Well, you've covered it extremely well. Good bit of UK column uh, teamwork there because you hadn't seen these slides before, we, before you were speaking. Um, but uh, this is uh, Michaela uh, tweeting out her pass for climate justice programme. But then we really get a clue here, youth from resistance to power. So the BBC drifting in a completely different agenda, deceiving the public as to what's really going on here. Here's more youth fight back, resistance against fossil fuels. And here are the young lovelies who are apparently going to save the world, incredibly naive, as you say. Uh, you can see uh, uh, Michaela's uh, smiling face in the foreground there. But actually, she had a terrible time because if we read this tweet, she says that being a young black woman in my, with my natural, af, sorry, natural Afro hair out at this sea cop has been very wild. A day hasn't gone by where I haven't experienced overt and pointed anti-blackness. It's exhausting. So she looks as though she's exhausting there. But here's the clue, which she also gives herself, is that um, she's talking about resistance to power. Uh, she said the event was incredible. We brought our full selves into this space, speaking on the necessity for true climate justice to be anti-capitalist, decolonial and for collective liberation. And so there's uh, once we get into the article, we can see exactly what's coming. But of course, the BBC lies by admission to the public as to the agenda really coming. But somebody else is looking at what's uh, really in the pipeline. Let's have a look at this Sky News clip from Australia. But the United Nations thinks that countries like Australia need to pay reparations to countries like China. Now, who, of course, is now starting to say this as well? Well, Greta Thunberg, she's changed her tune from sort of being the asterisk, cute little schoolgirl to now the full revolutionary. We are never going back to normal again, because normal was already a crisis. What we refer to as normal is an extreme system built on exploitation of people and planet. It is a system defined by colonialism, imperialism, oppression and genocide by the so-called global north. Now, to give you an idea about just how powerful this message is, you heard what Greta had to say and how far away that is from dealing with climate change. More so, the whole West got it wrong and must pay for the sins of being the West. Now here, a former socialist politician who runs the UN. And this is our only hope of meeting our climate goals. Humanity has a choice, cooperate or perish. 
It is either a climate solidarity pact or a collective suicide pact. So guess what? Australia is probably going to cough up. Well, no secret there. Uh, I don't think, Mike, as to what's coming. And uh, you've described it as Marxism, David. I don't think it's far off. People in the UK need to understand uh, what, what uh, climate change agenda really means. And it's uh, not looking very nice. But I'll just end this segment by saying that the lovely Michaela Loach was also uh, tweeting out things to do with migration. And um, she put out or retweeted this tweet that asylum seekers released from Manston Migrant Centre in hotels are dealing with scabies-like symptoms. And apparently this is the most important thing in uh, UK at the moment, dealing with migrant scabies. Um, no mention of vaccine deaths and damage at all there, Mike. So uh, a pretty interesting uh, young lady clearly working hand in glove with the BBC. Right, well, uh, Rishi Sunak, of course, uh, has headed over to the G20 now. Uh, he flew in this morning uh, in his RAF-coloured Airbus. And, uh, well, this is what he published just before he went uh, in the Telegraph. Five ways to prize open Vladimir's group grip on the world economy because he has a plan, David, for the global economy, and you're going to be extremely excited about it when I tell you all about it. So here's what he wrote in this article in The Telegraph. Leaders take responsibility. They show up. Yet at the G20 summit in Indonesia this week, one seat will remain vacant. So he begins by, uh, you know, getting the dig in as much as he can. He said, the man who's responsible for so much bloodshed in Ukraine and economic strife around the world will not be there to face his peers he won't even attempt to explain his actions. Instead, he will stay at home and the rest of us will get on with the task at hand. Uh, he said, that's why when I spoke to Vladimir, this later on in the article, when I spoke to Zelensky, the Ukrainian president last Thursday, I made it clear that Britain will never back down when it comes to supporting the Ukrainian people in the face of this brutality. As we recover from a pandemic that almost broke the world economy, uh, every household on the planet is feeling the fallout from the war in Ukraine. Global food prices have been hit. Uh, by Vladimir Putin's attempts to choke off Ukrainian grain exports, two-thirds of which go to developing countries. Energy bills have skyrocketed thanks to Russia turning off the gas taps. So you get the message. None of this economic woe was anything to do with Western decisions over COVID policy and lockdown and shutting down the economy and so on. And it's got nothing whatever to do with sanctions on Russia and the blowback from that on our own economies. Uh, and the fact that we basically have committed suicide, economic suicide as a result of that, David, it's all Vladimir Putin's fault. Uh, and uh, well, what more can we say? The, the only thing he hasn't announced is that the dark ships that were spotted around the Nord Stream pipeline was in fact uh, HMS Putin. Uh, indeed. So let's put let's get uh, his five point economic plan on screen because he has one, you know, and he defined it in the in the Telegraph. So here's first and foremost. Uh, Rishi must keep delivering urgent support where it's needed most in the winter ahead. And that's not just in Ukraine, that's also in the UK. So they're going to keep, uh, keep paying us to, to, to use electricity, apparently. Uh, but anyway, second, we must put an end to Russia's appalling weaponization of food, because that's what Russia's doing. Uh, third, we must take urgent action to protect our economic security and bolster our resilience against malign actors. Uh, this should be coming across as a really key economic plan here, David. But anyway, we go on. Fourth, uh, we must remain utterly committed to the promotion of free markets and an open global economy. 
which with in which enterprise drives growth. Uh, now, I think you'll be talking about Rishi's plan for tax later on, and I do wonder whether that is uh, showing commitment to the promotion of free markets. But anyway, uh, finally, we must work together with our partners, governments, the private sector, and international financial, sorry, that should say international financial institutions, that is a typo, their typo, not mine, uh, to provide the financial stability and probity that the international economic situation demands. So, uh, David, very briefly, uh, I guess you're highly impressed by that uh, five-point plan to bring the economy back uh, to its normal function. This is the, 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 the problem with the five-point plan is that four of the points contradict one of the other points. He talks about free markets and at the same time he talks about subsidising people, um, um, controlling the market in food, um, controlling the 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 degree to which the market is nationally based, so preventing international trade beyond a certain a certain level for strategic reasons, and he then talks about uh, international control of the banking um, and and financial sector. So yeah, free markets, and then everything he wants to do is not free. It's all about government control. So the free markets, what that is called, is window dressing. That's a little sop to that part of the Conservative Party who think themselves supporters of freedom um, so that he can go on doing exactly what he's doing, which is state control of everything. Um, blue is the new red, it would appear. Um, OK, but uh, don't worry. Uh, cryptocurrencies will come riding to the rescue, right? Maybe not. Uh, maybe not. We've got a little information here on cryptocurrencies. It's been a busy old week on that front. So here we've got the mail online reporting that $515 million stolen from a collapsed crypto exchange FTX in a matter of hours. But is it a hackers or an inside job, they ask? New CEO locks down the remaining funds in secure storage as FBI is called in and amateur sleuths trying to track down the, uh, the thieves. Now, this is all about this FTX um, crypto exchange, which was founded by Sam Bankman-Fried or SBM, as he's more generally known. Now, the effect of altruism for him, and he's very altruistic as Sam, uh, has got some information on him. They report he's an American trader, entrepreneur, philanthropist, founder of FTX, a cryptocurrency derivatives exchange valued at $32 billion, <laughs> and of Almeida Research, a, quant a quantitative trading firm uh, that's also collapsed. Uh, so Friedman was born in Stanford, California, and uh, his parents were both consequentialists. Look it up, you don't want to be one of them. Uh, and his brother, he and his brothers became take-no-prisoners utilitarians. And by take-no-prisoners, that's exactly what they mean, bayoneting people on the battlefield, if it's for the greater good. That's what utilitarianism means. Uh, and it goes on to describe his philanthropic work. Uh, he was a Bentham of crypto. Um, he uh, gave half his salary to char charity and animal causes. In 2020, he donated $5.2 million to support Joseph Biden, uh, becoming one of the president's top donors. And he's also um, been involved in supporting action on poverty, climate change, AI safety, biosecurity, pandemic preparedness. Oh, it's all the themes. Uh, he's apparently given away between 50 and $100 million and has stated that he intends to donate his vast fortune uh, to causes eventually. Um, 
And uh, Almeida Research originally required that all its employees donate at least 50% of their salaries to effective charities, although the policy has since been revised in order to attract more talent. It's a very complex business. Um, but we've got uh, a, a little clip here from Nobody Special Finance, an excellent YouTube site. Please check it out. Uh, they summarise the situation in 99 seconds, which is very good for UK column deadlines. This is Sam Bankman-Fried. People call him SBF. He's the founder of FTX. He also controlled a crypto hedge fund called Alameda Research, but that's all gone now. He wants you to think he's this sweet guy. He even bought in a famous YouTuber who called him the most generous man in the world. Yep, that happened. Truth is, Sam Bankman-Fried is a liar and a crook. His personal crypto FTX token was basically a Ponzi scheme hidden below layers of Moonbro jargon. He even went on Bloomberg's podcast and bragged about it. Yep, that happened. He used his Ponzi token as collateral to borrow billions of real dollars that he couldn't pay back. He then used those real dollars to build an empire out of dying companies like Voyager and BlockFi. This led Jim Cramer to call him the new JP Morgan. That's weird. It's not like Jim Cramer to promote a billionaire con artist. SBF sold people cryptos like Bitcoin. Or so they thought. What they really bought from SBF was an IOU. But as long as everyone didn't cash in their IOU at the same time, the scheme worked. Until it didn't. This other a-hole who hates SBF came along and engineered a bank run with some passive-aggressive tweets. It worked. SBF didn't have enough money to repay everyone at once, and now his customers have lost everything. He'll be happy to know that this is exactly how every bank in the world operates. So where did all the money go? He misappropriated $4 billion trying to save his failing hedge fund. Whoops, that's a felony. He spent $21 million on Super Bowl commercials, $5 million for the big guy, $40 million in campaign donations. I wonder what he wanted in return. And everyone who's pointing at this story and saying, This is exactly why we need to regulate crypto. Remember that SBF stole billions. That's already a crime. And he spent a lot of it on bribing politicians. Also a crime. In order to create a crypto monopoly for himself. Government regulations don't protect the customers. They protect the crooks. That's exactly what SBF was trying to do. So there we go. Government regulations don't protect you, they protect the crooks. That is so true. Um, but there's, it gets worse. Uh, we've actually got a link to the Ukraine crisis. So here we've got a tweet. FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried bankrolled Democratic Party's midterms war chest to some of $40 uh, million using funds from his now bankrupt crypto exchange. Meanwhile, um, blameless customers have lost billions in savings. This is a scandal that everyone should be talking about. So he's funding Biden's reasonably successful recent election campaign to a huge extent. Um, and just before we get to the Ukraine um, connection here, uh, the, the huge organizations have lost vast amounts. It's a hedge fund. Uh, Galois Capital says half of its capital is stuck in the FTX exchange. A uh, hundred million dollars. Who who does that? Who puts a hundred million dollars into this crypto stuff? Anyway, they did. They thought that was a really smart move. Um, the Ukraine um, link here. Ukraine partners with FTX, reports Yahoo Finance, from March this year um, to to launch a new crypto donation website. So aid for Ukraine. A donation website and the background illustration here of weapons and uh, body armor is the illustration that Yahoo Finance selected. Um, uh, Aid for Ukraine crypto donation website was run by FTX. So there was a huge tie in with money going to the Ukraine and money going into FTX. And then that, that funded the uh, Democratic Party, who was, of course, funding the Ukraine war. It all seems very circular.
We'll just finish this section with a, a small summary from veteran investors Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger discussing exactly the value of cryptocurrency investment. There's nothing being produced in the way of value from the asset that, that uh, you also have the problem that it draws in a lot of charlatans and that sort of thing who are trying to create various sorts of exchanges or whatever it may be. It, you know, it, it's something where, where people who are of less than stellar character see an opportunity to uh, clip people who are trying to get rich because their neighbors getting rich buying this stuff that neither one of them understands. It will come to a bad ending. Charlie? Well, I like cryptocurrencies a lot less than you do. <laughs> and so, to me, it's just dementia. And I think the people who are professional traders that go into trading cryptocurrencies, it, it's, it's just disgusting. It's like somebody else is trading turds and you decide I can't be left out. David, there's a fairly deep irony in that little uh, that little uh, uh, video clip. Well, yes, yes. There's a lot of there's a lot of um, there's a lot of turns to go around, but there we go. Uh, but they did at least call you know the exchanges and dubious characters. They did at least call that one correctly. Uh, but um, I mean, Jeremy Hunt must have the answer then. Uh, Jeremy Hunt, yes. So, what's the what's the policy? Well, we're going to have to pay more tax. We're going to cut thirty-five billion off of, off of government expenditure, and we're going to raise twenty billion more in tax. And uh, that's the plan. So, I would point out that the government isn't in charge of how much tax it raises. They can change the rates. They can't necessarily bring in more tax. The Scottish government proved that recently by putting up the tax rates in Scotland to soak the rich and bringing in very substantially less money than they would have had they not done anything. So whether he can bring in £20 billion more in tax is highly doubtful, and whether he can cut £35 billion in spending is politically doubtful, uh, because they're not actually tackling the core problem, which is we've got a government we can't afford. And whether the total £55 billion is anywhere near enough is also very doubtful, so there seems to be a lot of doubt. But it's OK, because Rishi, Rishi has his priorities straight, you see. Um, We'll deliver the public finances that the markets expect. So here's what we'll do. Uh, he says we're going to deliver on the expectations of international markets, making sure that our fiscal position is more has a more sustainable trajectory. That's what we'll do, he said in the autumn statement. So the expectations of markets, I'm not quite sure how he's defining that, but I suppose runs on the pound and things is, 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 a, is a sign. The expectations of, of international markets, be they right or be they wrong, is now what we are running the country to satisfy, not the long-term best interest of the people of Great Britain. That would be naive and foolish, apparently. Um, and on the subject of naive and foolish, I want to just briefly talk about Argentina because this is where we're going, right? Give us a year, we'll start talking about, maybe two, we'll start talking about price controls. Argentina are already there. Um, the uh, United States Department of Commerce here reporting Argentina's extension of consumer goods price controls. They are going to put price controls um, uh, over uh, 100 national and international companies for 1,321 products. Um, 
and those price controls are going to be extended until January 2023 with planned quarterly revisions. The first quarter ending in uh, 2022, the agreement limits manufacturers to price increases of 2% on average. So we've got 10% on Argentina's 40, 50, whatever percent inflation, but we're going to put price controls and we're going to limit uh, producers to only 2% increases. This will, of course, cause shortages and empty shelves, and that's what price controls always do. Financial Times also covering it. Argentina unveils price controls to tame inflation. Um, so they, they, the inflation's monetary. They can't, they can't give up their, their monetary uh, tools for um, bribing people and running the country into the ground. So they're going to have price controls. Um, they are going to control the highest level inflation after prices rose 4.7% in March much more than expected despite widespread criticisms that price controls implemented by previous populist administrations have failed, as they always will. The centre-right centre leader, so it doesn't actually matter, left-right, it doesn't actually matter these days, is struggling to rebalance the economy after a currency crisis. Well, we've had that, so we're heading in this direction. Uh, that saw the peso lose half its value, fueling inflation, deepening the recession, re recession and forcing Argentina to seek a $56 billion bailout from the IMF. Uh, quote, uh, these are measures that we have taken to provide relief. So this is the same thing that Rishi and, uh, and, and Jeremy Hunt are talking about. We're going, to put, we're going to act to provide relief this winter. It's just more severe than Argentina. It's the same idea. The government's going to provide relief. Um, said uh, Mr. Macri, uh, Macri uh, as he talked to a low-income family in Buenos Aires. Uh, we are not using shortcuts or magical solutions, but in the short run, it will be tough. They are using shortcuts and magical solutions because price controls never work. Anyway, that's the story. Officials said that price controls will apply to 60 essential products, including food, and last for six months. They differ from previous experiments as prices have been agreed with producers. Oh, well, that'll, that'll work then. Um, so the, the Times carries on and says, uh, critics uh, worry that the measures could lead to shortages. No, they will lead to shortages. That one's already baked in. Along with price controls, government announced that it no longer planned to implement further increases in tariffs and public utilities, including gas, electricity and transport, which have been a major driver of inflation. Instead, the state will absorb the extra costs. With what? There is nothing to absorb it. The state doesn't have any money. It's only what it can steal from its people, and it can't steal enough. We have got governments we can't afford. Argentina, Britain, Ukraine, Russia, they're all governments we can't afford, and it's getting worse. Okay, thank you, David. Okay, let's uh, very quickly just mention online safety bill, uh, because the I newspaper was uh, claiming exclusive a couple of days ago, uh, online safety bill at risk of being ditched due to delays, ministers warned, government urged to push the bill through. Uh, urgently, so internal advice from officials. So this, uh, the I says they've uh, seen uh, internal documents uh, within the Department for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport. Uh, reveals that ministers have been warned they risk letting the bill fall entirely unless they bring it back to the Commons quickly. Uh, the, the DCMS document states, you must decide whether to progress with the July 2022 version of the bill or whether to propose changes to the legal but harmful regime which will extend its parliamentary passage timeline. If we don't move quickly, there's real risk. Uh, the parliamentary business and legislative committee will withdraw the bill if they judge it will not pass in time. Uh, we can but hope. 
Well, I'm going to say that if uh, the online safety bill isn't dealt with properly, I probably wouldn't be able to make the report I'm just about to make. But let's finish the today's UK column news with this one. And thanks to Lou Collins, who's been working with the Welsh mums, who've been trying to, of course, stop the sexualisation of young children through the religious and uh, sex education syllabus in schools. So what she sent over to me was social media um, information about this young man, Sab Samuel. And uh, what was of interest was that he was a digital content contributor at BBC SESH. Uh, but as you can see lower down, he also was the, or is the founder, owner, author of Drag Queen Story Hour UK and Drag Storyteller at Drag Queen Story Hour Ukraine. <laughs> Pardon me, Freudian slip. Drag Queen Story Hour UK. So if we look into that, um, this is the website. Just fascinating to see that, for instance, NHS England would need drag queens to be helping to get its health policy out and about. So I'm not sure what that's about. And if anybody can uh, tell us of the connection between NHS England and the drag uh, queen story hour, we would like to know. Uh, but they say some more about themselves. Uh, it's to provide fun and interactive kid shows with amazing and talented drag performers. Drag Queen Story Hour UK wants to allow the world uh, that being different, sorry, wants to show the world that being different is not a bad thing. And by providing imaginative role models for children to look up to, we can change the world book by book. So we're going to change the world in the uh, um, image of drag queens. Uh, let's have a look at their little promotional video to really understand what it's about. So there we are. Interesting stuff. And uh, if you didn't know what BBC SESH is, I think you need to have a, a look at that. It's Get Involved with BBC SESH. And uh, it says that BBC SESH helps to develop creative talent, 18 plus from across Wales. We're always on the lookout for new people to work with. If you're a filmmaker, a content creator, a comedian, or if there's a burning issue you think the world needs to hear about, please get in touch. So I'm going to suggest that uh, BBC has got its in-house promotion for um, the drag queens operating amongst young children. And many parents would say that's not healthy. Um, but uh, thank you to the UK column viewer that sent me this link to a gentleman called Christopher Rufo, who's written a really good analytical piece called The Real Story Behind Drag Queen Story Hour. Uh, there's a lot of detail in this, but he just starts off by saying that families with children find themselves caught in the middle. And uh, the line that's being given is kids are able to see people who defy rigid gender restrictions and imagine a world where everyone can be their authentic selves. 
uh, but of course many parents are critical but reluctant to say it publicly. Uh, he says, the author of the article says the concerns are justified, but to mount an effective opposition one needs to first understand the sexual politics behind the glitter sequins and heels. This requires a working knowledge of an extensive history from the origin of the first queen of drag in the late 19th century to the development of academic queer theory, which provides the intellectual foundation for the modern drag for kids movement. And uh, it goes on to talk about the movement being born in the sex dungeons of San Francisco and incubated in the academy. It's now being transmitted with official state support in a number of public libraries and schools across the United States. Well, of course, it's not just the United States, it's also in the UK and elsewhere, but really encourage people to read this analysis to understand uh, the real dangers of what's actually being done here. Mm. So we had better finish there, a little bit late starting today's news. David, a very brief comment if you want to come in, I can see you frowning. Well, the, the, the comment there that you have to understand the background to the Drag Queen story is absolutely right. Uh, the, the, the critical theory, which is another form of cultural Marxism, the critical theory, the queer theory, underpinnings of it, is what it's about, and this is about destroying the family. It's about destroying uh, the, the very basis of society in order to recreate it as the cultural Marxists would wish. It's not to do with being kind and understanding towards people who are different. That's simply the, the smokescreen under which it operates. You have to you have to understand the real agenda. Once you understand the real agenda, you can you can call it out. You can challenge it based on what it's really doing, and that uh, because we're dealing with an opposition here which is based on lies, uh, it's based on deception, it's based on concealment. That works. Calling it out with the truth, calling it out with a proper understanding and a good and detailed reading of their own literature which explains in detail what they're trying to achieve, including such things as breaking down children and, and destroying the relationship with their own families by sexualizing them at a young age. Once you understand that that's the agenda, it can be fought. Okay, we'll end there. David, thank you very much. Mark, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. And a big thank you to all our viewers and listeners. And we just add that if uh, you're able to uh, buy uh, a friend or family member, a UK column subscription, that would be really excellent for us and of course would help us not just keep going but to expand. We'll end there. Thank you for joining us and we'll be back. In a few minutes for yeah. some extra if we can. Uh, we've got a few technical problems today but we'll see if we can sort them out and uh, otherwise 1pm Wednesday. Yeah, stay posted. Thanks for joining us. Bye bye.